grief can be lonely and isolating, especially for those experiencing pregnancy and infant loss. At times, it may even feel as if the sorrow might consume you. Welcome to the Birthies Loss Support Podcast. Join me, your host, Michelle Smith, as I hold a much-needed space for grief, remembrance, and the journey of healing through conversations with grief and trauma experts, the sharing of stories of loss and love, as well as guided meditations. Hello and welcome. I'm so grateful that you are here. In last month's episode, Laura LaBelle and I discussed children and grief, and this episode is the perfect follow-up. I am so honored to have with me Dr. Corey Bell. She is the author of the most gorgeous book, Why is Mommy Crying? Explaining Early Pregnancy Loss to Young Children. This beautifully illustrated story that she has written helps children as young as three years of age. The young protagonist, Max, using his imagination and accompanied by his stuffed animal, Mink, begins to understand what has made his mother sad. His imagery and ideas offer a gentle springboard to discuss broader concepts surrounding grief and recovery including religion. Why is Mommy Crying? Explaining early pregnancy loss to young children helps to end the all-too-pervasive silence surrounding miscarriage and the uncertainty of how to broach it with young children. This inclusive book offers age-appropriate comfort, consolation, and reassurance, which is incredibly helpful when we ourselves, as parents, may not know what to say. Its themes are universal and non-denominational. My dear guest, Corey Bell, MD, is a board-certified OBGYN. She completed her OBGYN residency at John Hopkins Medical Institute and then practiced for many years. She is now a professor at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine. In addition to many years caring for women and their families, she is an award-winning short story author and the mother of two. She hopes that Why Is Mommy Crying comforts those who have known the grief of miscarriage, especially the family's youngest members. Welcome, Corey, to the podcast. I am incredibly grateful and honored to have you here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I also feel honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you. If you don't mind, can you share what inspired you to write this book? I love that it's written from the perspective as a mother and also as a physician, as an OBGYN. And so I feel like it's got such a wonderful wealth of experience within that which losing a baby is an unfortunate experience, but I feel like it just gives you a depth of understanding. Thank you for that question. I think that the primary drive for writing this book was my own experience as a young physician who personally experienced a miscarriage. And I went looking for resources to help me explain this to my children and discovered there weren't any. (laughs) And also was somewhat shocked 
that there is really nothing in my traditional faith-based religion to support me either. And I realized historically people had many more pregnancies and maybe tradition hadn't caught up with society, but for there to really just be this resounding silence around miscarriage. And the message from many people was also, oh, you're young, you're healthy, you'll have another, don't worry about it, happens all the time. There was just no encouragement to acknowledge it as a significant event or to even there to be a necessity to discuss it with my children. I found all of that incredibly surprising. And here I was as an OBGYN, I knew what to do medically, I knew what was going on medically, but to find this sort of resounding lack of any response from society in general, from my larger extended family, from my religion, this all was really surprising to me. And so I started looking for resources And I fully expected somebody else would write this book, but nobody ever did. (laughs) So you wrote the book within the last few years. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, the first draft of it was actually written very early in my career, but then it just sat in a drawer and I pick it out every once in a while. I mean, I'm not a children's writer. I like to write. There's a sort of field related to medicine called narrative medicine that's about using the arts to increase physician empathy. There's encouragement to journal about your experiences, taking care of patients to, you know, maintain your empathy because it's it's easy as a physician, I think, to get somewhat um, callous isn't exactly the word, but things start to lose their impact. And the arts help with that. So I've always been a bit of a writer. I've published some short stories. I like the narrative word, but I knew I wasn't a children's writer, a children's picture book writer that wasn't in my wheelhouse. So I really fully expected somebody else to do it. Mm. There's a trend now in writing in the last several decades to deal with sensitive subjects in children's literature. There are many more books about like losing a parent or grandparent, experiencing traumatic, the processing traumatic events. Yeah. But there was just nothing out there around early pregnancy loss. Yeah. And I think it's so important to talk about it because just like you and I were talking before we started recording the conversation and last month's episode, children are aware. And so just as you said, when we were chatting, you get told what to do and how to navigate this miscarriage. And sometimes that's handled very well with a lot of compassion and a lot of instructions. And sometimes it's not, and that can be its own pain and confusion and that. But then even when you sort through it, how do I tell the kids? How do I tell my children? How do I navigate that? What do I do now? Yeah, certainly my own experience changed, I think, the types of instructions that I gave my patients above and beyond, you know, call me if the bleeding increases instead of decreases and those kinds of instructions. It made me say things along the lines of children will know what's going on. 
and they have a great capacity for love and they have a great capacity for grief and they know what's happening. And though they may express it differently than an adult, they certainly are going to react to this in the family. I think another thing that I always encouraged my patients was to have a little selective deafness. People are going to say things that are well-meaning. They're going to tell you things like, oh, don't worry, you'll have more. Oh, it was meant to be. And really, you just have to hear them say, I care that you're sad and do you want me to do some laundry? You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah just you, you have to filter out some of the things. Otherwise, you, you will be very hurt by it. I mean, yeah, I never conceived again, even though I was perfectly willing to after my miscarriage. So I just people want to be kind and they often just don't know what that consists of. Sometimes you have to fill in the blanks in your own head for what they mean. <laughs> Right. Well, as David Kessler says, we're a very grief illiterate society and we just, we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to navigate this thing of loss and grief and mourning and death and pregnancy loss has just historically been shrouded in so much silence. And then it's like after the fact, if you're say, oh, I had a miscarriage, I lost the baby, then sometimes people would come out of the woodwork and say, oh, I did too, but you never knew. Wow, yeah, I think you've hit on a lot of the themes that I've been sitting with for the last few years. There is a vast silence around, especially early pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, that has to do with the fact that people used to have many, many more pregnancies and the fact that, you know, a fourth or a third end up being miscarried, that was just sort of par for the course. Mm. But when you have two or three pregnancies, then a miscarriage, I think, carries a lot more weight. But yet, as a society, we haven't caught up with that. Yeah. And I really hope that why is mommy crying, explaining early pregnancy loss to young children is the kind of book that can help open the conversation. It's meant to be inclusive. It's non-denominational. The little boy is multiracial. It's meant to be as an inclusive book as possible. I wrestled with the decision whether or not to mention God in the narrative and not realizing that that opens a whole other can of worms on the post-production side of children's literature. Mm. But for me, I think that Children hear all the time, oh, it was meant to be, oh, the baby is an angel now, the baby's in heaven. They hear a lot. I mean, as a society, we have a lot of cultural references for grief around religion. And so the word God is in the book, but there is no denominational markings. There's no Jewish star or crescent or cross. There's no pearly gates. There's no angel wings. It's meant to be as multi-denominational as possible. Yeah, which I think that's important. I like the way that you pointed that out because often children do hear that, that, oh, the baby's an angel now or the baby's in heaven or God wanted the baby for his own. And you address that a bit in the book too, which I feel like was so helpful to see and avoid 
using sayings like sometimes when it's a later loss, people say, oh, you know, they went to sleep or they were born sleeping and, you know, all these things that can confuse children. So I think you handled it in such a nice way because the little boy does ask what's going to happen to you, mommy. Do you need to go take care of the baby? Oh, thanks, Michelle. I really tried to write a book that will comfort and yet doesn't belittle the feelings, the very strong feelings that the child has. And I think feeling responsible is very common among young children. Yeah. Being worried that the mom's going to have to leave also is very common. Wondering if something's going to happen to them. Those are all things that run through children's minds. So I try to be cognizant of that. And I think I drew on both my experience as a physician, but also my experience as a mother. I really appreciate that you understood that when you read the book, that we get that kids feel things strongly and have a great capacity for feelings and that they want their feelings to be taken seriously. And the explanation in the book is appropriate for children as young as three years of age, both comfort and help them understand and also be a springboard for larger discussions in the family. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And the artwork in this book, dear listeners, is incredible. It is so beautiful. I've read this story a few times. I love looking at it and taking it in. And there's so many little special nuances in it as well. I am so lucky to have found Heather Bell. And I cannot say enough about her incredible talent as an illustrator and what a joy it was to work with her. I think Why Is Mommy Crying was her second book. I think she's going to have a brilliant career. And, you know, the first thing Heather did with the manuscript was read it to her own young child who encouraged her to do the book, Mm. which I think is a nice story in and of itself. Yeah. And actually, it's a very exciting moment for an author when you get the box, right, in Mm -hmm. the mail of, of your first box of books. And the first thing that Heather's son did was take the book out and read it to his stuffed animals. Because, of course, at the time when we started, when she got the manuscript, I think he was maybe three and a half or so. Of course, by the time he got the book, he was five going on six and able to read. Oh, wow. And so the first thing he did was sit down and read it to his stuffed animals. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. And he was sort of a part of the whole story. But Heather was just an amazing illustrator to work with. Anybody's out there working on something that needs an illustrator. Lucky to work with someone as good as Heather. Yeah, I can see that in her artwork. And like I said, it's just so well thought out. And there's the little story about the airplane. Can you share that? Yeah, sure. We had a a little mobile over the child's bed and Heather took that airplane and as visual interest as the mom is talking about that some babies are not ready to come to the family and need to return. She has the little baby piloting around the airplane, you know, through the pages and it's just so beautifully done. Yeah, it really is. And then the little boy's stuffed animal, was that stuffed animal your sons, is that right? Yes, my son carried a little monkey around that he named Mink. 
and that was his constant companion. And when we were trying to transition him from diapers to underwear, and he had his little pull-ups, we had a little pull-up for mink, for his oh. little animal. Oh, and in so the book, cute. you see him carrying a stuffed animal with its little pull-up on. <laughs> which is really just straight out of my child. You know, it's so important to have visual interest in a children's picture book for the child listener to be able to focus on. And the little stuffed animal is very, very expressive throughout the story, showing the emotions of the story. But I really enjoyed having the monkey in the book because it was just straight out of my son's life. Yeah. What did he think about all that? Well, my son is 32 now. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, when I sent him the pencil sketches of the book uh-huh. and I said, look, Max, you know, obviously you're going to recognize yourself in some of this story and this is your chance. You know, it, it's not in production yet. So tell me what you think. And he, you know, it is sort of close to the best way. He said, it's okay, mom. You know, very nice. <laughs> But the last time I was in his home, I saw his, the book there and he has it on his bookshelf. So uh-huh. I think he's shown it to his friends. So I do think that he likes it. And I think my husband is from Kansas City. Uh-huh. And he used to wear my husband's like sports t-shirts to bed, which is where you see this jersey that the little boy's wearing with the number on it. Oh, yeah. And that's the number of my son's current Kansas City favorite player. <laughs> so. Oh, that's fun. There was a neat story about that, too, about you being able to use the jersey, right? Well, I was worried about impinging on the Kansas City Chiefs trademark or logo or right or that the jersey would be recognizable. So I wrote to their public relations office. I sent an email saying, I've written this book about miscarriage for children. And my son, who was the model for the little boy in the book, is a huge Kansas City fan. And I want him to wear the Kansas City jersey with the number 15, which Patrick Mahomes for, for anybody who, who doesn't know, which I, I would have trouble believing anyone on the planet based on my family. Anyway. <laughs> um, so they were very kind. They wrote back. They congratulated me. They said they were very happy you know, that somebody was doing this work. And that if I simply did not have the gold band on the arm, then I wouldn't have to worry about any impingement or infringement or whatever the right term is, any copyright issues. And I wouldn't need permission. Just don't put the yellow. They have a red and white jersey, but there's a gold band on the arm. If I didn't put the gold band on the arm, then I could use it without any permission needed. Wow. And that letter that they returned to me was enough for my publisher to go ahead, you know, be happy and and not do anything beyond wanting a copy of the email. Yeah. Yeah. It's so lovely that they were encouraging you and so supportive, especially too, because this is kind of a taboo subject. And it sounds like they gave you their blessing. I sent him a copy of the book. Did so. you? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I didn't get an answer, but I mean, I'm sure they get lots of fan mail and stuff. But I did send a copy, a uh, finished copy in. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> that's so great. So, is there anything else that you want the listeners to know about the book? I love it. It's so beautiful. 
I think the book speaks for itself. It's a print-on-demand book. So it, if you go and look for it at Barnes & Nobles, they can order it, but it's not going to be on the shelf. Okay. But it certainly is available through Amazon and all of the online okay. Target, Barnes & Noble, anything online, you can find the book very easily. It's called Why Is Mommy Crying? Explaining Early Pregnancy Loss to Young Children. Or you can look it up by my name, Corey Bale, B-A-I-L-L, or by Heather, Heather Bell which is B-E-L-L, you can find the book. And there's been several podcasts and articles that I've written. So even if you just Google, some things will come up about the book. And it's been really well reviewed. I've been very grateful to the reviewers who have posted and I'm very appreciative of the reviews and carry a five-star review at Amazon and at other outlets as well. And I'm very appreciative of that. Yeah, I was so excited when you reached out to me about it. It took me a little while to get back to you on it, but it was like pegged there. Like, I'm going to reach out to her and I'm going to have the conversation. And I feel like now was really the perfect time. Again, I'm so grateful. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because I have to tell you, launching a book during a pandemic is a whole entire other story. You know? Oh, I bet. This book was published January 21. And so all my whole marketing plan, which of course is, you know, done on a complete shoestring. I mean, the publisher was helpful for some things, but after they're done with their initial marketing, then it's all author driven. And that's mm. just completely common in children's books. And so my whole marketing plan was, oh, I'd go to medical meetings and go to the American College of Nurses, the Wifery American College of OBGYN or, you know, whatever's going on. And I'd come with my little box of books, but of course, all in-person meetings were canceled. And, and so this has been a whole other education of podcasts and blogging. And this is all yeah. new to me. You know, I'm a dinosaur. And so launching a book in a pandemic, it's just been, you know, it's really just all word of mouth. And so I'm very grateful for anyone who wants to talk about the book or wants to talk about children in grief, want to talk about miscarriage. And also, as we've talked about at length, there is far too much silence about miscarriage. Women have grieved way too long in silence and been told, you'll get over it, just move on. And I don't think that's the appropriate message. We should have the time and the permission and the support to grieve a loss of a pregnancy, especially when we're not having 15 to 20 pregnancies over the course of our life. Right. And I hope that books like this will help. I hope it inspires other people to write, maybe do a better job of it. And I really appreciate you talking about the book and talking about the subject. Yeah, it's interesting. I think this work finds you. And when it does, it's so wonderful to find like-minded people in it in order to support families because our culture anyway tends to, oh, well, it's been three days. You should be done grieving or two weeks. And well, it was early. Why are you crying? You know, you can get pregnant again. Those things you're saying. Or I was horrified to see recently an article about women that have experienced a stillbirth and then they're not given their medical leave with their company to heal like any other birth. Oh, that's horrible. And to grieve. 
Yeah, it's just horrible. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I don't think we do enough to take care of families during pregnancy and postpartum anyway as a country, but that's a whole nother <laughs> conversation. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, live birth either. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wait, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah. I would like to say that there are some really excellent resources around stillbirth. Star Legacy Foundation has support groups all over the country, and they also have a podcast called uh, Still Matters that interviewed me early on. And also in the back of the book, I list other resources and organizations because I do think sometimes it takes a little effort at a time when you don't have a lot of resources to find these organizations that can be supportive, but they are out there. Yeah. And I think too, with grief, there's times where we're ready for the resources and sometimes we're not, but it's good to have them and really just want to affirm to people that when you're grieving, it's a process. There's not a timetable and it's okay to say no to things if you don't feel up for it. And just give yourself that time to heal and grieve, especially when we've experienced pregnancy loss. And so I was wondering if you could, is there some things that as an obstetrician that you would like parents that have experienced a loss to know? Because so often parents, especially mothers, can feel like, oh my gosh, it was my fault. Or is this amount of bleeding normal? Or if they haven't even met, especially in super early pregnancy loss, they may not have even established care. Yes, established care. And so just some of those things that would be helpful for them to know. I feel like I'm switching hats here, but um, yeah, I know. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) But from a physician perspective, if there's anybody listening who has experienced a miscarriage, First of all, do reach out. I think that you should reach out and make sure medically everything is going as it should. The body has an incredible capacity to heal, but I still think it's important to make sure everything is going in the right direction. So, you know, once a miscarriage is completed, then bleeding should be getting to be less and not more. Things like a foul odor or bleeding that's increasing instead of decreasing certainly a fever that persists, all of those are things that you really need to reach out to a medical professional for, to make sure there's not an infection or a complication. Sometimes pregnancy loss can be associated with molar pregnancies, which can be benign. And then there's a rare condition that can be malignant that's associated with that. But the hallmark is excessive bleeding. And so I think that if things are getting prolonged, protracted over over days and weeks and not getting better, but getting worse, absolutely, you should reach out to someone. The actual amount of bleeding that can occur with the miscarriage can be quite dramatic. And I think the benchmark that we use is soaking through two maxi pads an hour for more than two hours is something that uh, crosses the threshold of where you need intervention. So that, that's sort of, those are sort of the medical parameters. But the other really important parameter, I think, is to tell people what you've been through without yes, shame because yes. miscarriage is common. And as humans, our tendency is to want to find that reason. Why did this happen to me? Oh, it must be my fault. I didn't rest enough. I didn't eat the right things. I skipped my prenatal vitamins. 
I went to the sauna when I wasn't supposed to. It's very, very easy to blame ourselves for a miscarriage and for other medical events in our life. But miscarriage is incredibly common. It's kind of amazing how it all happens in the first place. And it's no wonder that it doesn't always implant correctly. A pregnancy doesn't always implant correctly. It doesn't always grow correctly. And kind of depending on how early on you're measuring when pregnancy loss occurs. And home pregnancy tests are now so sensitive that they're positive before the first missed period. Yeah. You know, vast numbers of pregnancies end up in spontaneous miscarriage. I think the official American College of OBGYN number is like one in 10, but that's all pregnancies. When you're looking at the first trimester, it's much more like one in five, one in six. And if you're looking at from date of conception, it's more like one in three, one in four. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole essay I wrote for Compassionate Friends magazine about how do you count how frequent does miscarriage occur? But it certainly, no matter how you count it, it is a frequent occurrence and you're not alone. And once you will tell people that you've had a miscarriage, you're going to hear among your friend group and your family. And I have been the physician to tell a patient that their pregnancy is not viable, that it's not going to continue. And sadly, she will miscarry the pregnancy and have the mother tell the child, tell the patient, oh, you know, I went through that mm. twice in the course of my, the one before you, one after you, or something like that. And the child who's my patient had never heard that before. She never knew. Yeah. And certainly writing this book, I had a very powerful experience with a very close friend of mine who I had been through her having breast cancer and surgery and recovery and all of that. Good friends for many, many years. It wasn't until I wrote the book that she told me about her miscarriage. Wow. And she never knew that I had had one. Wow. So you're not alone. And if you will reach out, you will be amazed at the support that's out there and how many of your friends and family have been through this and also been silent, unfortunately, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm taking a breath because listening to the stories or I'm thinking of you being with your patients and having to inform them that their pregnancy has ended, that their baby's died, or it's not a viable pregnancy. That's such a difficult thing to do and to hold that space. It, that is a difficult moment. And I think it's a difficult moment if it's a six-week pregnancy or if it's a term pregnancy. Yes. I think it requires me to be the best version of myself that I can be as a physician when I have to impart that kind of news, because I know from my own experience, as we all do, that we remember when we hear bad news. Yeah. Yes. And I want to be sure that I do it as compassionately and with as much warmth as I can possibly manage. You know, I acknowledge that it's going to be a moment in someone's life that they're going to remember. And I don't want to add to that in any way. I don't want to make it any worse than it already is. And so all those things that I'm now teaching the medical students that I work with, you know, you make sure that your beeper's off. You make, or that dates me, (laughs) that your phone is off. 
that you're sitting down, that the door is closed, that you don't have distractions, that you maintain good eye contact. I mean, all those things from the physician side that are so important, you know, that you do hold a hand, that you stay as long as you feel that you can be helpful. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you as a professor were modeling and teaching some of this, and I'm so grateful to hear that because those are all such vital things when conveying that and holding that space. I work on it from two ends, Michelle. One is that I serve on our admissions committee, which is a huge time sink and a lot of people don't like to do it. I serve on our admissions committee because I want to make sure that if I can, I can weed out those people who maybe never really should be a physician in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I work on it at that end and I work on it at the other end, which is trying to equip our young medical students with some of the skills that they need to maintain their humanity and their empathy and their care for patients. None of us are at our best all the time. Right. And of course, there are some physicians the empathy role comes easier to than others. But I do think at their heart, most people go into medicine, really want to be there to help patients and are open to learning the skills. And I think there are many really caring and wonderful physicians out there. But I will also say that never to underestimate the impact of the nursing staff and the care of the other professionals and then some of the paraprofessionals. Yes. Everybody in healthcare has that patience somewhere. I mean, sometimes it's hard to maintain it at the end of a long, long, busy, horrible day. But I think, you know, nursing assistants, unit clerk, patient transporters, all these, you know, the people at the help desk when you first come in and you're kind of frantically trying to figure out what room to go to or what department to go to. All these people have a role and many of them are just the most caring, wonderful human beings and that nursing staff can help so much, especially when a resident's running their feet off and they can't spend the kind of time that they want because the next thing is, you know, the next obligation, the next obligation is pulling them. The nurses can be such a source of help to us as physicians and to the patients. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I, I guess I'm just trying to say it's a team thing. And, and I know, well, I mean, everybody who's had experience with COVID, even if it's just getting your vaccine, I mean, people come in so anxious and so worried and they know what a caring, helpful practitioner can do for them. Yeah. And my hats are off to the whole health professional field. They've really been through a rough time. Yeah. These last couple of years. And I mean, I don't think any of us have gotten unscathed by the pandemic and the grief that COVID has yeah, caused. Yeah, I agree. We're all grieving globally. So many things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think. So, I mean, I'm a little off topic here, but I, I just want to say that, uh, yeah, I do. I really do try both on the admissions end and on the teaching end to instill a caring and empathetic attitude Yeah, and try to help young doctors find a way to stay in touch with their humanity throughout their professional yeah. career. Yeah, because you and I both know that one of the ways to mitigate trauma and events that happen, whether it's during a birth or a stillbirth or a miscarriage, is for that patient and their partner, their support people, to feel listened to and heard and to have things explained to them And to have received informed consent, like that makes such a huge difference. 
and how things are perceived. I think being heard is at the root of social justice also. Yeah. That you have to be seen and you have to be heard as a human. Yeah. And that also requires a respect for where people come from culturally yeah. and ethnically. Yeah. I think being seen and heard as a patient is from the same well as being seen and heard as a human. Yeah. Yeah. I'm grateful you're teaching this next generation of physicians for sure. I really am. There's some very caring and wonderful people in the pipeline. So, yeah. And I hope that if as a listener, you're someone who's had a loss, whether a miscarriage or any type of loss, that you have found solace in the people who have cared for you. Yeah. So if someone wants to find your book or to reach out to you, you said they can go to Amazon or find it online on Target or Barnes and Noble. And do you have a website that they can go to to purchase it? Oh, thanks for asking. I have to confess that, I mean, I have an author's page through Amazon and I have just a little Facebook page for the book, but I, I'm really not terribly active on it because I just find that I have so many other things to do and I yeah. did not grow up, you know, social media is all new with me. I'm in my sixties. So <laughs> um, I'm doing a little bit more than I've done before. And as I said, I've guest blogged and interviewed but certainly you can message, you can leave a tweet through the hashtag is WIMC book. Okay. And I'd be happy to respond. And if someone is, if, if you're involved in a grief organization and you want copies of the book, then you should be able to find my email, I think, through the College of Medicine. I'm at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine. And I do on occasion provide the book at cost so that people can fundraise if they have the book. Then it's the difference between the list price and my price. They're welcome to use to fundraise for their organizations. Oh, that's so kind. Yeah, I mean, I haven't broken even, believe me, on the podcast. No, I'm sure you have. I haven't on the podcast either. People are like, oh, you're a podcaster. You make all this money. Oh, you're an author. You make all this money. And it doesn't work so way. Yeah, not quite. But but someday, if I ever do, I mean, I have, you know, I have my, I've learned how to do Excel. I've got my spreadsheet. If I ever break even, I'll be happy to donate any additional proceeds of the book to Early Pregnancy Loss Association or Star Legacy Foundation or any of the many groups doing good works. Yeah, I did not write this book for profit, yeah. and I, but I don't think I'm in any danger of it occurring either. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Before we close this out, and I've enjoyed this conversation so much, it's been so good for my soul. Um, Listeners, I shared with Dr. Bell today that yesterday my sister-in-law passed away. And so you happen to listen to that interview where she shares about entering into hospice and what that experience is like. She did pass away yesterday. So I wasn't sure I'd be up for doing this interview and was very honest about it, but it's been so good for me and to share just about grief and the importance of honoring it and honoring pregnancy loss and 
Thank you for this conversation. I'm so grateful. Oh, my, my heartfelt condolences. I'm glad that we were able to meet as well. And I, I hope that you find comfort in the fact that the work that you do comforts many others. And we appreciate you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And so before we close, do you have anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Thank you for listening. Certainly, if you do read Why Is Mommy Crying? Explaining Early Pregnancy Loss to Young Children, I would welcome your reviews and I really appreciate them. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And remember that there are those of us out here that are holding space for you and want to make certain that you feel seen and heard and validated. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode helpful and it provided you some comfort or insights. For a list of bereavement resources or to connect with me for grief support, please visit my website at birthyservices.com backslash loss support. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at Birthies Law Support. If you would like to help to support me in this work to hold space for grieving families, one of the simplest and best ways is to please follow, rate, review, and share, and share again this podcast. And please be kind, compassionate, and patient with yourself as you walk this journey of grief, remembrance, and renewed hope. Remember, there is no right way to grieve the loss of your baby or your loved one.